Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the November 15, 2016 edition of Ask a Leader. Before I head deep into today's program, I'm still contending, like everyone, with some pretty raw post-electioners. And it's proportionate to the shadow cast across our nation of some very pernicious policies. As radio waves are a privileged domain, I shall endeavor to be decorous and respectful. Folks, here's my earnest request, along with the one about our needing to listen to one another. We also need to move off the hyperventilating social network platforms and start reading, even reading the fine print. Yes, I'm asking for some effort here. And I'm suggesting that you act. I'm not telling you that you act as I have. One can go in so many directions. Just that you act on upholding the stakes that matter to you. It's important that you do so before the elections. And if you did, my heartfelt gratitude. It doesn't help that much that you only join the rallies afterward. Citizenship is work, which we do for your sake, our sake, and for the sake of our successors. As for where we are headed, supporters have gorged themselves on empty calories at the Trump buffet. The GOP cocktail party is massing up with its deafening toasts. Today we have an enviable array of legal talent in both climate change and reproductive health. First, Lauren Kurtz, Executive Director of Climate Science Legal Defense Fund, is going to try to shore up the momentum of climate change policy. It's getting more difficult to maintain, though, with the GOP soon to control all national levels of branches of government and more state governments. During the second half, UCI law students Olivia Weber, Ali Shabbat, and Laura Lively make the case for UC campus pharmacists to supply contraception without prescriptions. It's the law, you see. We'll talk about it, implementing the protocol. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Lauren Kurtz. She's Executive Director of Climate Science Legal Defense Fund. This organization, formed in 2011, works to defend climate scientists who either are dragged into litigation or threatened with legal attacks and harassment by politically and ideologically motivated groups. Prior to joining the center, Lauren practiced law at the international law firm Dechert uh, Limited Legal Part LLP. She represented commercial and individual clients on a variety of multi-billion and multi-million dollar commercial disputes, as well as litigation over Freedom of Information Act requests, document discovery claims, and defamation claims. She has also held legal and policy positions at the United States Environmental Protection Agency. Lauren graduated from the University of Pennsylvania Law School. She comes to us today from the Big Apple from New York City. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Lauren Kurtz. Thanks, Claudia. Very happy to be here. Well, since I originally booked your appearance, the world looked 
and felt a bit different. I know. And, and before we attend to that, let's have you talk about the charter of the Climate Science Legal Defense Fund, about your clients whom you discussed on recent uh, episode Science Friday called Science in the Crosshairs on Public Radio. So why was it necessary to form this Climate Science Legal Defense Fund? Sure. So it started because back in about 2010, 2011, um, you know, even in a more liberal political climate, individual climate scientists were still being attacked largely by, um, you know, very right-wing, not entirely, but very right-wing conservative forces who didn't believe in climate change or didn't like the implications, and they were doing things to drag climate scientists into court. Um, One of the more famous cases was the Republican Attorney General of Virginia went after uh, Dr. Michael Mann, who was then a professor at the University of Virginia. He failed, but a um, quote-unquote public interest group, um, which also espouses that climate change isn't a real thing. They went after him with an open records request, and the University of Virginia was all set to hand over about 12,000 of his emails to a group that openly said that he was a fraud and that um, you know his research wasn't valid. And obviously, giving all of your personal communications and your professional correspondence and your peer review correspondence to a group that is openly attempting to discredit you in pretty nefarious ways. I mean, that was just very dangerous. Um, so CSLDF was formed to help him and some other scientists who were in similar positions fight against groups that were trying to go after publicly funded scientists by using open records laws. Open records laws, they were written to uh, apply to policymakers and um, you know agency bureaucracy personnel, those sorts of figures. But in recent years, they have been used, and I would say twisted, to go after publicly funded scientists, saying that you know scientists need to be under the microscope. Um, the same way that a politician needs to be, and that scientists, you know, can't necessarily trust it, and so they should turn over all of their emails and peer review correspondence to whatever group wants to tear apart them or their research. Well, Lauren Kurtz, I've interviewed a heck of a lot of climate scientists on my program, and mm-hmm. they are a one busy lot. Yes. They have a lot of work to do, so when they get they dinged by this request for information, there's two things. One, they, they won't have the time, and their first, it's a sort of a an immediate shock to their systems, which is also yeah. undermining their productivity. So yeah. talk about that as a, as a, sure. a tactic I mean, to undermine science, which we all are the beneficiaries of. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm anti-transparency in science. I think transparency in science is a wonderful thing. But well, that's not what they're asking, though. Yeah, no, this, is, this, is, this goes far beyond transparency. This goes to um, a fishing expedition of every casually written email that you may have sent or received in the last 10 years. Um, you know, and some of these scientists, you know, it depends on their institution, but some of these scientists are forced to go through the records themselves. There was a case in Arizona that's still ongoing where the two scientists testified, and one of them said he lost an entire research summer to having to review old emails from the 90s. And another one said he lost a sabbatical because he had to review, again, old emails from the 90s. And, you know, the group that was asking this didn't want to understand their science better, wasn't asking for data, wasn't asking for explanations of papers, wasn't even asking for the papers, wasn't asking for anything. They wanted, um, you know, all the email correspondence they'd had with certain figures. They wanted all the email correspondence that contained things like the word deadline because they had this theory that these scientists had rushed their papers um, through the peer review process mm. inappropriately. I mean, it was, it was a very um, clearly biased attempt to, you know, impugn 
up, upstanding, professionally respected climate scientist by a group that has taken an official position that climate change is a hoax. Well, I am going to get Michael Mann on December 6th, everybody, so we'll hear it directly from him where he's yeah. going. He's going to talk about his, his new book out and all of that. But meanwhile, um, so the effect of these interrogatories, as it were, of the sort of mm-hmm. political type, So, what does that do for, what shadows that cast over how scientists communicate with each other? Oh, um, it definitely does, yeah. I mean, first of all, I mean, any scientist who's been through this, I mean, they get told by their colleagues, I don't want to communicate with you by email anymore. I possibly don't even want to work with you because that means I'm next. Um, you know, so that's that's really detrimental. That closes off a lot of professional contacts. Um, you know, the ones who do remain in contact, people become much more circumspect. The idea that science should be a free exchange of ideas, I mean, once you put people under the microscope like that and you ask to eavesdrop on every single casual conversation, that clearly... Um, affects academic freedom, that affects the ability for scientists to discuss freely. I mean, that's just really bad for scientific progress. It also makes scientists less interested in publicizing their research. Um, right. I mean, the people who are going after them are not fellow scientists. The people who are going after them are, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of uh, Looney Tunes uh, groups that, you know, will find something that comes up in popular press and then they'll say, I need to take this person down. I don't believe in their research. I need to go after them personally. So it makes scientists really you know, wary about publicizing their research to the public, which is something that we all benefit from. So it's really sad to see scientists get um, nervous about that for, for good reason. I mean, why, why stick your neck out if you're going to be put through the ringer like this? And I guess there... There's nuance. There's, I mean, I'm just trying to think of all the content in an email, all the free expression yeah. that that can sort of advance every micro step science research is taking. That uh, we're all, we are all at a loss here. Yeah, I mean, you you want your scientists to be able to freely to speak. discuss things, and and maybe, and maybe they throw out some zany idea in an email that you know, ten minutes later they realize was not the greatest idea, but. You want, you know, a researcher to be able to freely explore things like that. And once you put them in a fishbowl with, um, you know, teams of groups that are just out there to, to discredit them, I mean, that's, that's a really chilling effect. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader here on KUCI 80.9 FM in Irvine. My guest is Lauren Kurtz. She's the Executive Director of Client Science Legal Defense Fund. We're looking at the unfolding of the of science. Now we're look, we're going to be looking at the unfolding of policy too. So so you collaborate then with scientists all over the country. Yeah. Are, so what are your plans now? It's what are some recent projects that we ought to know about maybe where yeah, we can watch. Yeah. So I mean, like you said the election results last week have definitely put us in a different world. So we have been this past week preparing for, you know, worst-case scenarios, we are concerned that the incoming administration will do what um, some previous administrations have done. Um, the Bush administration, for example, was accused of this, and they will try and suppress climate research by federal scientists. They will cut funding to climate science programs. You know, President-elect Trump, it's his transition team seems to be in flux, but right now he has stated that he plans to appoint um, Myron Ebel, who is a, a pretty um, extremist climate change denier as head of the transition team for the EPA. Steve Bannon, likely to be chief of staff, and he has published through Breitbart News all sorts of 
statements saying things like climate change is a hoax designed to defraud taxpayers. I mean, these aren't people who are coming at climate change from a position supported by scientific evidence. Exactly. They have their agenda, and it is concerning what they might do. So, Myron so Ebel, when I listen to him talk, yeah. I hear of a kind of a deadpan libertarian ideological parley. And I, it, it, as you said, it's not symmetrical with the rigorous science that they're challenging. Right. This must make you all crazy. It's upsetting. Um, it's upsetting. I mean, we'll see what actually comes to pass. Obviously, you know, the scientists are all planning to continue their work. Um, agencies like the EPA will still have career employees who are committed to protecting the environment. But it is disheartening that the people at the top might be totally at odds with what we need for the planet. Um, in any case, I was talking about what we were going yes. to do to prepare. So we're preparing for helping scientists deal with that sort of suppression. We're um, preparing for helping scientists deal with a possible influx of more of these kinds of invasive open requests, um, possibly, I hope not, but possibly being targeted directly by the administration. I mean, President-elect Trump himself has shown <laughs> to be a legal bully, and he's not afraid to go after personally anyone who he disagrees with. Um, I think it's possible that um, some of these people in Congress who, even in the Obama administration, were pretty open about um, going after climate scientists, that they might be galvanized to do more of that. So we're expanding our programming offerings. We're doing more educational work. We hope to do a bunch of stuff right around the inauguration to prep everyone, should that actually be needed. I mean, we're just preparing for the worst-case scenario here, and fingers crossed, we'll see what happens. So when you're talking about educational work, you're talking about in the legislative arena, the academic arena, let's um, um we were we mostly educate scientists about, right. you know, this is what you this is what it might possibly happen to you. This is what you should be worried about. This right. is what maybe in your situation you don't need to be worried about, which, you know, can be a relief to tell people. Um, you know, because these are possible risks for you, these are things that you should be careful about. One of the things, for example, I always tell scientists is don't mix your personal and professional email. Because if someone goes after your professional email, it is just better for you if your personal emails aren't mingled in with that. Um, you know, we'll do everything we can to protect your professional emails too, but it's just better if everything is um, organized. Well, it you is know? better cyber hygiene anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's better cyber hygiene. I mean, unfortunately, one of the things that I think this election showed us is that every, everyone is at a risk for being hacked. Um, I mean, email isn't as secure as people maybe want to think it is. So we talk to people about good email hygiene. We talk to people about what are the rules in their particular state because so many of these rules vary by state to state. Some states are really great and really protective and some are not. You know, so if you're in a protective state, maybe you can breathe a little bit easier. Um, if you're not, you know, there are certain precautions you can take. We also educate lawyers on how they can help scientists. Most yes. lawyers are pretty aware of open records laws, but they're, most of them are actually pretty shocked when they hear they're applied to scientists because these were not the way the open records laws were written. They were designed to, you know, be focused on people who work in the bureaucracies, people who, um, you know, are policymakers, who are making decisions every day. Not, right, about you know, laws, how they yeah. were made, and laws, how yeah. they're being codified. Yeah, I mean, they're designed to give uh, taxpayers a look into how their government works. And now they're being applied to scientists who receive uh, public funding. And, and just for the record, I mean, I yes. think there are ways that um, public records laws can be used appropriately for publicly funded scientists. I think if, if taxpayers want to understand, um, you know, where exactly the funding is going, that's one thing. I think if they want to see some of the published results, um, you know, there's an effort to make data more available. I think those are all good things because they help advance the science. 
But I think when you're trying to get into an individual email exchange that happened in maybe 2004, just so you can try and claim that some paper that was written in 2010 is, is fake, it's just really not in the public interest at all. So there's two ways I want to ask this is your communication with scientists. I don't know if this is sort of gagging you to some extent. But you I mean, as an attorney, I can talk to scientists about their legal okay. problems, and that's actually protected by the attorney-client privilege. So, okay. yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, the lawmakers, that's um, intact. they did a good job of protecting their own communications and lawyers' communications, and they didn't necessarily send that um, more broadly. But when a scientist talks to me, that is protected. So that's good. I mean... So when there's, there's then about one... You and I, I'm sure most scientists are on board now. They, they're, they're, the network has been sufficiently put on notice about some basic things to do. But maybe you can tell our listeners what yeah. it is that you advise them in a general way. What do they do the minute the subpoena comes to them to t- hand over? Sure. So if, if we're getting to a point where we're at a subpoena, I tell them you need to get a lawyer. <laughs> And sometimes it can be me, but at that point, we usually like to hand them to someone who has expertise in whatever jurisdiction that is. So we helped a scientist last year who got a well, – he didn't get a subpoena, actually. He got a letter of inquiry, but it was still pretty frightening. Right. He got a letter of inquiry, which doesn't quite have the same legal weight as a subpoena, but still something you don't want to get. It was from um, a congressperson who believed that his work was inherently fraudulent because this congressperson doesn't believe in climate change. And we helped the scientists get a law firm to help him. Um, they were really generous with their time. It was a former federal prosecutor who had spent some time on the Hill, and he was able to negotiate some stuff. He reached out to minority counsel. I mean, some of this was not in the court. It was just managing to rally the right forces to push back on the, the congressperson. And eventually it went away. It didn't actually get to full-on litigation. But I think when you get something like that, you do need a lawyer to help you navigate it because... For example, the scientist, his first instinct was to say, oh, I'll just call the congressperson and explain that this was a misunderstanding. Yeah. And it was like, that would might be perfectly appropriate if you're dealing with a fellow scientific critic, but this congressperson is not your friend. You really need a lawyer who understands the system and can explain to you your rights and, you know, make sure that you don't accidentally put your foot in your mouth or, you know, disadvantage yourself in some way. So, yeah. And you, um, yes, Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, if it gets to the point where you're getting a subpoena or a letter or a threat of a lawsuit, you absolutely want a lawyer who is specialized in that field. We've helped scientists get um, First Amendment lawyers for defamation cases. We've helped scientists get open record specialists. I mean, what, whatever the scientist is facing, we try and get them someone who has some expertise in that area. So that's a financial drain. We're talking, there was, there's a time drain. There's a sort of a psychological drain, and here's the financial drain. That's the third tactic. Yeah, I mean, we we have a policy that scientists shouldn't be forced to pay for their own uh, legal work, and we've been really fortunate to get many attorneys who are able to commit pro bono time. But that's not always possible. Um, You know, sometimes we, just to make sure the scientist gets the right lawyer, we'll, you know, find a lawyer who maybe can't do pro bono but can still do it at a cut rate, but still, you know, they can add up legal Services are very time-intensive. Um, you know, if a scientist needs a reputation for months or years, that can get really expensive, which is why we exist, um, to help a scientist not have to worry about paying it. Even if we can't take away the problem, we can at least make it less bad. Well, I'm thinking, uh, not, I'm not being snarky here, but I think there's a brain trust for the, the candidate who lost in the presidential election, and they probably want to put themselves in play here, and they, they mm-hmm. may be lining up to help you, I imagine. 
That would be wonderful, yeah. They, no, and it's been very heartening, actually. In the days since the election, we've actually gotten a lot of outreach from the legal community saying, it. you know, I'm prepared to help if need be. And I think that's really wonderful. Um, I mean, people people understand that this is a problem. So so you were also talking, Lauren, you first were talking about suppression uh, mm-hmm. efforts underway. But the, it's it's not just about uh, interfering. It's It's also about distorting. Oh, as a sure. way of undermining. Talk about how that's another tactic, the distortion, like what we say, something will be lifted out of an email, something lifted out of a publication, out of an abstract that that the that creates a real literacy problem for the general public to understand what yeah. the huge stakes are here in climate yeah. science. I mean, that's really, yeah, I agree. That is a real problem, too. That's more of a PR issue. Um, we have worked with some communications professionals in the past who have helped us try to manage it, but we're mostly a legal group. But I agree, the communications aspect here is really important because it just ends up feeding into itself and just, the problem just continues to snowball. So you're, do you feel like you've been able to reach most of the academic climate science community? Um, I mean, are, are you getting still some uh, calls that, of people who had no idea this was going down? Um, I think every climate scientist, frankly, is aware that, um, you know, they get a disproportionate amount of negative attention by, you know, just because this has become a politicized issue, even when I think personally it should have nothing to do with politics. I think climate scientists are very aware of it. They may not necessarily know about our group. I hear from scientists frequently who say, I had this problem. I mentioned it to a colleague. He or she told me to contact you guys. You know, so I think within the scientific community, we have some really good representatives, and you know, within an individual department, people can refer us to us. But it's possible that not every single climate scientist has heard about us. But they certainly are aware of the problem. I was talking to a climate scientist last month, who's at a very well-respected university, and um, he made a comment that there's a running joke in his department not to open up um, handwritten mail from people you don't know because it could possibly have um, an anthrax scare, which has actually happened to climate scientists. Um, Is that right? At one point, we're sending... Um, none of it was actually anthrax, but that's still terrifying. Um, so. Absolutely. Well, I, we, we're talking about this transition now. You named Meyer and Ebel and, uh, and Mr. Bannon. There's yep. two other names that are cropping up. That mm-hmm. Lucas Ham, a... a, a a fossil fuel magnate. He's being considered for the Department of Energy. And yeah. I thought we would never have to bring up this name again in a federal appointment. But Sarah Palin as the Secretary of the Interior, what, I, does, what, could they, what kind of subpoenas could come out of their executive branch that way? Um, what well, are you ready you know, for? Yeah, so the subpoenas have tended to come from um, the legislature. Because Congress has an inherent investigative authority. I would be more worried um, in terms of the executive branch departments, that they would cut funding, that they would, um, you know, perhaps do internal practices. I guess I don't know for sure that they can't do subpoenas, but I've never seen subpoenas come out that way. They don't really have um, um, enforcement authority the way that Congress or, you know, the judiciary does. Well, I just want to keep looking on all flanks because there was... Well, definitely you're right to be concerned if, um, you know, Trump appoints some of these people that he's contemplating. They're there are bad choices and then there are worse choices. It looks like, right? And I I hear the uh, the siren in the background. It's a it's a metaphor we're playing <laughs> into the interview. Well, I yeah. I I want for you to t- take any opportunity you want while we're together now. If you had additional thoughts about what we ought to be 
stepping up to and adjusting. And I'll certainly give you a chance to to uh, present what people can do for client science defense fund. But but this, these are special times we're in, and yes. people have to really process what is a dreadful prospect underway. Yes, yes, I know. And I mean, let's remember that the midterm elections are in two years. Um, you know, we should do what we can to make sure that um, you know those elections go away that represent our interests. Um, please write your state and federal representatives. I do think for climate change, a lot of this may be happening now on the state level. So certainly know, you know, if this is something important, let your state representatives know that this is an issue that you really care deeply about. And, I mean, it's, it's dark. I don't think it's hopeless, but it is, it is disheartening. And... I'm I'm not going to say about the trend of of where uh, whether whether we're going to get ahead of this freight train. I'm I'm that I'm going to leave with the scientists. I want to for yeah. you to um they're more qualified than me. Well, too. no, it's not that. But I mean, I I sort of I I'd hate for the the doom to to sort of make all bets go off and nobody does anything anymore. But uh, even as yeah, that, I don't think that's right, and I don't think any scientist is saying that. I mean. It's just it's like how, you know, we're, we're in a bad situation. What can we do to make it less bad? And I think there's really an importance in recognizing that there is a lot of opportunity for hope and a lot of opportunity for progress. Okay, there's so, certainly no reason to give up. Right. So the Climate Science Defense Fund.org is one way people can find you. Yes. And on there, I'm going to, I'm now going to plug that you have, uh, you have merch, merchandise on there. Yeah. That's just yeah. in time for the holidays. So sure, yeah. it plants your name everywhere. People can can get Michael Mann's book there. I got yep. my copy for the interview in December six, folks. And we, uh, you also have some other goodies there. You can you'll accept donations on there. You can enlist people to do certain things. Uh, any kind of a wish list for what you, you've told us about writing to the legislators and our. I can just say for those that are listening in this immediate zip code, our representative we we have only gotten to the point where our congresswoman is listening to the citizens climate lobby about how her grandchildren might be affected so they're moving sort of geologic time with her to get her on board but um so tell us what other measures as we conclude the interview what kind of things you want listeners to do attorneys and others yeah well i think you know everyone should stay informed read the news and uh, we personally have a mailing list People are welcome to join. We send out about one or two emails a month with cases that we're working on, um, you know, in- information about some of the issues that scientists are facing. So if you're interested in these issues, please sign up for our mailing list. And, again, we always welcome donations. We always welcome volunteer time, especially from attorneys. Um, we do have some swag on the website. We have uh, pint glasses for sale and T-shirts. And, and as Claudia mentioned, we've been selling copies of Michael Mann's books. You can buy a copy. You can buy a signed copy. Yeah, I mean, we're all in this together, and anyone who's interested in helping should certainly check out our website. I definitely share in feeling depressed about the (laughs) results of the election, but I also think, you know, we've had presidents who didn't believe in climate change before, and we've had, um, you know, political issues before, and I don't think there's any reason to stop. So I think there is reason to hope, and I think... You know, there are so many people who understand this is an issue that I am optimistic that ultimately we'll still be able to make progress. So, Lauren Kurtz, how can we make grassroots activism more than a quaint exercise? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I can only speak to my particular organization, and like I said, we do a lot in the courts, and we do a lot with working with universities to understand the stakes, and we do a lot of educating scientists and lawyers about you know the issues at play. But there are certainly many other great organizations that do uh, grassroots work. Um, you had mentioned some, the Citizens Climate Lobby, you know, 350.org is one of the bigger ones. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's it's a matter of getting informed and finding a group that speaks to your particular value set and doing what you can within that. I really do think it can't be underestimated, reaching out to your representatives to let them know what you think. I think that's really important. Secondary only possibly to actually voting, which I hope everyone did in this past election. Well, one thing that uh, uh, the Republican, I keep forgetting his name, the, the former congressman from South Carolina that's been working on climate change, and He's posted. Oh, Bob Ingalls. I think. Thank. I always forget his name. And that he's he knows that the staff, for of the GOP legislators, they're on board. It's just Great. that orthodoxy. So I don't know if that's uh, what we're grassroots can keep working them. And but but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I there's a they're walking in double file here with the the you know Eric Cantor's coming back. They're all coming back now. And uh, yeah. they're they're refreshed and powerful and they're licking their chops so i, I don't yeah. know if that if the staff underneath the elected officials if there there is some kind of a influence there that's just at the cusp of being tapped into i hope so okay hope so. okay well lauren kurtz thank you for your time and your insights about the shifting policies with respect to climate change thanks for being on the show today thanks for having me We'll be back with our UCI law school students, and they're going to talk about prescriptions. Let's take them off the table. Let's get these pharmacists moving the contraception. We'll be right back. Dreams Deferred by Bill Beach. Welcome back to the show. My next guests are th all three-year law school students, Olivia Weber, Ali Shabbat, and Laura Lively, making the case for UC campus pharmacists to supply contraception without prescriptions. Ali Shabbat, raised in Sonora, California, earned her Bachelor's of Science in Business Administration at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo at UCI Law School. She's the president of If, When, How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice, a student group that advocates for reproductive freedom. After graduation, Ali will be a graduate law clerk with the Los Angeles County Public Defender. She devotes her time toward advocating for her clients' access to the legal system. Next, Olivia Weber, a product of Idaho Falls, Idaho, studied philosophy at the University of Montana, where she also played on the women's golf team. I think fours, she's probably saying four every other moment since last Tuesday. <laughs> Prior to the law school, she was a whitewater raft guide and ski instructor in Idaho and Colorado, a skill set good for legal work and for public policy at present. In law school, she's research assistant to Professor Michelle Goodwin, been a guest, she's gonna be back on as soon as I can get her, <laughs> and Professor Gustafson with the Center on Law, Equality and Race. She's a founding member of the Native American Law Students Association and hopes to advocate on behalf of tribes for her career. After 
man, she's got the pipeline to deal with. But that's a whole new reversal there, I'm afraid. After graduation, Olivia will clerk with Judge Snyder at the Federal District Court in Los Angeles and then Judge Kristen at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in Anchorage, Alaska. Finally, Laura Lively, who serves as UC Irvine School of Law's student body president and Dean Chemerinsky's research assistant. Laura hails from Santa Clarita, California. She completed her Bachelor's of Arts in English Literature at Cal State Fullerton, and her master's degree studies in humanities, fused public policy, philosophy, and literature. After graduation, Laura will work in the litigation section of Morgan Lewis, and I hope I got this right, Bacchus, mm-hmm. and in, uh, in Los Angeles. Laura's committed to advocating for the rights of women and children, reforms that will end mass incarceration, and ensuring that everyone has fair and equal access to the justice system. They all three join me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Laura, Olivia, and Ali. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. So let's start. We'll get a chance to process the election, but people need to know all about Senate Bill 493 that was passed three, count them, three years ago. When uh, that was when the public health protocol was passed in the legislature. So tell us what's the law all about? Well, this is Olivia and the the law is really about ensuring better access to birth control for women. And initially it was passed with the intention um, to increase access for rural women and first generation women in parts of California who simply did not have the same access or could not afford to access care with primary care physicians, which is where you would typically get a prescription for birth control. And so this law would allow these women to go to a pharmacy, which usually would be much closer or more available than uh, primary care doctors. And so this really just allows women of all backgrounds to be able to access birth control in a much easier and uh, quicker and less invasive manner than before. And access is public health. Yes. It's 98% public health. That's right. Okay. Anybody else? I guess just to tack on to that quickly, says Allie, the, the pharmacist protocol that we are specifically advocating for provides for safeguards for uh, pharmacists to make sure that this law is as practical as possible. Pharmacists are required to take patients' seated blood pressure to advise them on different forms of birth control, um, specifically the over-the-counter horm- hormonal contraceptives. And we are, our thought uh, reading this protocol and finding out about this law was that it is a practical measure for pharmacists. But um, if anybody has read our op-ed, they've seen that. October very, 6th in the Los Angeles Times. Yes, yes. Um, they've, uh, few, very few pharmacies have actually enacted it and none on UC campuses. That, that was going to be my question about. So you are, you're the ones, mo- you're mobilizing here on this campus. So you no doubt have colleagues at other schools, other health centers in this UC system that are working with you? So so this is Laura. Um, we actually began this process, the three of us getting together, calling other UC campuses, um, calling CSU campuses, really just calling pharmacies across the state of California and trying to figure out where this, where this protocol was being implemented. Um, and we were stunned to find out that it was not being implemented anywhere on UC campuses. So Was that hard to find? 
Was that information hard to find? Uh, No, I mean, we really just called pharmacies and they either had no idea what we were talking about or they um, were actually quite defensive in saying, no, we're we're not doing that, that we don't need to do that here. Really? Um, Yeah, women have... How presumptuous. Yeah, yeah. So it was was an interesting process that around that same time we got in touch with the UCI Student Health Center because um, when we began advocating for this... um, the implementation of this bill, we started hearing from our friends and our colleagues who were dealing with um, really extensive wait times in order to get these primary care appointments to um, access birth control, um, wait times exceeding weeks and months. Um, a lot of them were being subjected to pelvic exams in order to obtain birth control. That was sort of an internal policy of the UCI Student Health Center before we um, before we started our advocacy. So. That's sort of how it all began. We haven't yet had the opportunity to reach out to other students on other campuses who are doing something similar. One of the one of the reasons why we wrote the op-ed right. was to raise awareness on other campuses that if these same problems that were happening on UCI's campus were happening elsewhere, we wanted to hear about them and we wanted to build coalitions between UC campuses. So your editorial, you were it was directly from you to the LA Times, not through any kind of a UCI communications channel, right? So so what I want to know, so did the chancellor's office give you a call and say, hey, what can we do to help you out? Oh, no. No, no, <laughs> no. All right, we're, we're naming names. I mean, yeah, yeah. so, so um, I was, I did send an email um, notifying uh, Janet Napolitano's office that we had written an op-ed, and I did get a response saying, thank you for the notification. Um, but beyond that, we stock answer. Yeah. But beyond that, we weren't given any sort of direct communication from anyone in regard to it. However, we did, we did, I guess it was like a couple weeks later or maybe a week later, did get a response from the UCI student health center that CC'd a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people higher up in the UC system, um, asking for a meeting with us, which we have scheduled for next week. Um, and basically um, standing firm that they that the UCI Student Health Center is not interested in implementing the pharmacist protocol but that they have some other plan that they would like to present to us um, an online system that they think is going to be uh, sufficient and um, going online. to speed up the <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So this is Ellie, and we do honestly hope that an online system reduces wait times and reduces okay. primary care appointments. Um, we just don't know. We have no way of knowing until I guess it's implemented and we are able to somehow track it. And so we are hoping that if anybody listening today or on the podcast later is uh, is using this online system to get birth control directly from the health center. Uh, we would love to hear about your experiences. Mm-hmm. We but would love for you to reach out to us. I'm, we were talking about cybersecurity earlier, but I, I'm wondering, online, is it still it's protected enough, you to think, the communication? Well, this is Olivia, and during our meeting with them next Tuesday, I think the UCI Clinical Staff Committee will let us know. That's part of the meeting is to figure out what is this online system, how does it work, what sort of protections mm-hmm. uh, will they afford to students, and how quickly can we expect our... Uh, petitions to or our request for birth control to be approved mm-hmm. well I, I i was wondering whether dr howard federoff is you know if he's going to be leading edge this is his chance is he is he in the loop yet 
Uh, he has not been in the, the loops. CEO of the whole medical facility yes. for UCI. Yeah, so we actually had to look him up when um, we, when you asked us this earlier. Stop. Really? Because we, um, we n- had never heard of him, frankly. And uh, there have been some other UCI vice chancellors um, sort of in the mix, especially after our op-ed went live. Um, basically, a couple days later, we got this this email saying, oh, it's okay, we have this online system now with a bunch of brass, as you called it, CC'd on that email. Um, however, uh, Dr. Federoff was not part of that, as far as we know. I'm, I mean, I always, when I think I want something done, I always try to code it and frame it in, I know you want to be leading edge. And so it's sort of how to right. get them to buy in that way. Yeah, this is Laura. One of the things that we that we tried to encourage the, the Student Health Center, we, we initially met with them in May um, to propose the pharmacist protocol to them and to really um, encourage them to do this. And we did say, UC Irvine can be the uh, leader in this field that can be the first UC campus to implement this important protocol that a unanimous California legislature passed. With and, the support of the UC system, by the yeah, way. With the r- resounding Where, support of the UC system. In what, in what fashion was the s- system? Who was doing the, This the, is Ali. The Napolitano's office? Yes, yes. Yeah. The Napolitano's office, um, the, the UC system supported in, in the legislative process three years ago. So that's the refrain. Every time you communicate with mm-hmm. the brass below her, that, by the way, eyes over here, this is your boss who's who set this up legislatively. You administratively have a duty to carry out. Absolutely. Yes, we agree. And we, by, by writing the op-ed and by notifying President Napolitano's office, we were hoping for some sort of response. Instead, we just got that stock answer, which was wow. which was a, a bummer. But as we said before, we're hoping this online system is a huge improvement on the wait times that women face at the health center. And this is, Laura, one thing that, like, I just want to echo what Ali said that we're really concerned about now is seeing if the promises that have been made to us in these in-person meetings and through email are are really coming to fruition if women really aren't experiencing the longest the longer wait times that they were before if there really is more efficiency if there really is less invasive barriers between women and then access to birth control Um, i know that when you call the student health center and you ask you request an appointment in order to obtain birth control you're still asked if you would like a pelvic exam during that appointment I, i hope that women understand that while you can certainly say that you would like to have a pelvic exam during that appointment it is not a requirement and it isn't even really recommended for women and healthy women on an annual basis so we're hoping that this interview will encourage women to please email us please contact us with any experiences that they're having because that's really the only way that we're able to keep the student health center accountable at this point yeah well i think listeners are puzzling so we're we're this far (laughs) into the interview why the deterrence here what what's the big stall for? So what's the rationale? Yeah, the the UCI Student Health Center gave us a couple of reasons, and they've backed off on some of those reasons, and then they've really hit home on on other ones. The main one they've really said there's not enough privacy in our physical student health center because, and this is Olivia by the way. Part of this, part of the prescription process with a pharmacist is that the pharmacist will take your birth control before you can get any sort of prescription. And the Student Health Center says that there's just not enough privacy in the current form of the Student Health Center to be able to uh, take a woman's seated blood pressure. We definitely take issue with that. If you go to any pharmacy, you know, an Albertsons or a Safeway, they have 
seated blood pressure chairs out in the open. It's not an invasive thing to get that done. And of course, if women feel that if it is invasive, they can go and seek a primary care appointment where they can have more privacy. They also say that this will be more expensive because they'll have to hire more pharmacists. I do agree. I see that we will definitely, there will need to be more pharmacists, but the thing is they've had three years to plan for this. And, and there was funding. And there was funding, and they've was been... Was enough funding? I mean, is there, is it just a token thing, and that's there's a credence in that? I'm, I'm actually not sure, because the, the Student Health Center hasn't been very forthcoming with this. Okay. But what we do know is they have been uh, having requiring women to have pelvic exams last three years, and I'm sure that has also been a substantial weight on funding. And so I just think you have to look at where you allocate funding. and um, And then I guess the... The third reason is that not only is there a physical privacy issue, but I think the student health center is worried that there's also a privacy issue with talking with women about personal things such as sexual health and sexual history and what you are seeking out of this birth control. And then what we urge the health center to consider is that birth control and birth control counseling is no different than any other drug counseling you would get at the pharmacy window. All right. For those of you who've just joined us, my guests are Olivia Weber, Ali Shabbat, and Laura Lively. They're all three third-year law school students here at UCI who've penned the LA Times editorial last month about the need for UC pharmacists to supply contraceptives without a prescription. And we're here on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, streaming on the web in waiting rooms all over the world at KUCI.org. So, the funding, the appropriation for implementing this protocol. So the I don't know if the funding has been released and it's being used for something else. Is that if that's part of what you suspect might be why they're not forthcoming? I'm just trying to figure out what's what's going on in the background. Yeah, this is Allie, and well, that's a great question. We just don't know. Uh, we were also hoping that our op-ed would sort of key off to President Napolitano, maybe there are funding issues here, and that's why this this isn't happening. But we we just don't know. We just don't know. We, we just think, generally speaking, um, if funding is required to hire more pharmacists, that down the line, with less primary care appointments, that will cost less money down right. the line. Of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a obviously, this is all speculative, but that seems to make logical sense to us. Um, but we, there's not even any actual evidence that there will need to be more pharmacists mm-hmm. either. That is also speculative. Yeah. We're just even conceding that there is. Wouldn't wouldn't it cost less down the line? That was Ellie. Yeah. Yeah. This is Laura. Laura. I I agree with that, and I just want to add that I think. One of the things that's frustrated us throughout this process um, that we've tried to communicate is that women's access to repro- like to reproductive health care on this campus is unequal compared to men's access to health care on this campus. The symmetry is not lost it, on any one of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I think women's students pay for services here, and they should be able to gain those services the same and equal pace that male students are gaining those services. And so one thing that we're really trying to emphasize is that if there are funding issues, the UC system needs to deal with it. If there are wait time issues, the UC system needs to deal with it. If there are logistical uh, facility issues, the UC system needs to deal with it. and we're we're perfectly willing to work with them and figure out, you know, how they can do that. But it, it those kinds of um, 
reasons for why implementing the protocol would be different, would or I'm sorry, would be difficult, are not um, substantial enough to w- outweigh the constitutional issues that are going on here uh, as far as access to health care and access to reproductive services. Well, I, while we're updating listeners, we'll, we'll get a chance to talk about where things are going to shift on the federal level to make this all the more of an urgent situation. But are there any more updates other than the meeting next week? And uh, next it's week. next week. And so who's coming? I'm well, not going to say what you, um, we're, we can get that far in the interview. Okay. The three of us are going. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah. The Student Health Center Administrative Director, Chuck Adams, I'm pretty sure he'll be there. He's the one that we've mostly been talking with. Um, he's, he's sort of the, our liaison between us and the Student Health Center Committee. And then, uh, this is Laura, there will likely be other members of the Clinical Staff Committee um, as part of this meeting. In the past, we've had communication with the former director of UC Health, um, who's since retired. So I don't know if uh, her replacement will be involved in this conversation, but... um, So far, he has not. Yeah, so far, he has not been involved in the conversation. But yeah, we're we're pretty certain that Chuck Adams, the administrative director, and then the clinical staff committee of the UCI Student Health Center will be there. Well, it seems to me that given the kind of uh, stonewalling you're getting to some extent that you're you want to see a little higher representation on, on the the hierarchy here of the health system. But yeah. is, that, is that telling you something? Well, I think it tells us something that we've been feeling throughout this whole advocacy process is that it, it reinforces that we're students. We're not, we're not staff. We're not administrators. We're not professors. We People are often reminding us as if we don't know that this law is not mandatory. It's just permissive. Um, and as third-year law students, we definitely know how to read a statute by now. We know that the law is permissive. <laughs> Our argument is that even though it's permissive, given the constitutional obligation of the government, a UC system, uh, to afford women equal access to birth control and reproductive health services, um, that they should... There's an obligation should, to codify the that, law. Exactly, Absolutely. that there's an obligation for them to do it. Um, and And... Because because women are the ones taking birth control and have been the ones stymied with this requirement of reproductive health services, uh, that they should do all that they can to make it as easy as possible for us. And this is Lauren. I would just encourage students out there, too, that we are stronger when we um, advocate together. And so one of the reasons that we've been reiterating that we need to hear your voices and we need to hear from you about the experiences that you're having our activism is only as strong as our allies. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, and, and so I would just encourage anybody who wants to be a part of this, who wants to be a part of this process to please email, email me, Laura Lively at L Lively at lawnet.uci.edu to email Ali Shabbat at a Shabbat at lawnet.uci.edu. C H A B O T like Chabot. (laughs) <laughs> okay. And then you can email me. It's Olivia Weber, Weber at lawnet.uci.edu. That's O-L-W-E-B as in boy, E-R. I'll put that up in the podcast summary so it'll be easy Thank for you. listeners to Great. get that. So uh, now, Paul, Speaker of the House, that's the, the national level, House. Mm-hmm. Paul Ryan is already not answering. He's being very coy about whether contraception the provision will remain in the Affordable Care Act in the new administration and new negotiations. So how does that affect what you're doing? What do you see is coming? What's on the horizon? 
This is Ali. And unfortunately, what we see on the horizon is totally foggy and vague. Um, President-elect Trump has already rescinded and gone back on a number of campaign promises. And so we literally don't know what he's going to do. And as you said, Paul Ryan has been very vague about it as well. But we I think we should be prepared. I think we should be prepared if the if birth control is no longer provided under the ACA. I think that that student health centers at UC schools and schools all across the the country, they need to step up their game. They need to be able to provide birth control in a very easy, accessible way. And I think in California, the the pharmacist protocol is a way to do that. What line item number is that in your meeting points, talking points next week? Number two or three? Mm, I think number one. Number one. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Number one is eyes over here. Mm-hmm. That stack the law with the unanimous right. pass. Wow. And additionally, something that we can start doing right now because the, the future is so unclear is to access health services right now, is to enroll in insurance right now. Mm-hmm. And to, if you, if you can, to donate money, donate time to organizations that are helping women access birth control and reproductive health services. Planned Parenthood, If When How has a national branch. They're, they do really awesome reproductive justice advocacy. Um, NARAL pro-choice. There are literally hundreds of organizations that can use your use your money and use your time. Well, I'm trying to count up the years. Uh, about 40, I'm thinking 46 years ago, I was working on access on demand for various reproductive contraceptive measures. That 46 years ago, I had I'm actually going to could break down right now. I have would have had no idea 46 years later. This is what we had to show mm-hmm. in public policy arenas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is Ali. We've I'm, we've actually had a number of women contact us about that same and men contact us about that same issue that they've been fighting for this and they can't believe that we're having such sim- similar conversations now. Well, ladies, I honor what you do. I've heard some of you in action at Michelle Goodwin's race and gender forum last Thursday. I really am in awe what you all do and how you comport yourselves and the fire, intellectual power you bring. I, I want to thank guests Olivia Weber, Ali Chabot, and Laura Lively, UCI Law School students that are here to talk about their meeting going in and we'll post those emails so people can, I don't know if they're invited to come to the meeting or they can be outside in the waiting room they c- in their suits. So, <laughs> so, no, no, I, I, I'm never joke about that kind of thing. So thanks for being on the show today. Thank, Thank you so much for Thank having you. us. So folks, that's about the wrap here. Next week we'll have uh, UCI director Jane Page, two actors staging soon on campus an important play, Our Class. It's important in these times. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Yeah,